Good morning. I want to add my welcome to you as well and invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, to Psalm 110. Would you agree or disagree with the following statements? Our children are going to inherit a better world than we did. I feel our country is on the path to being stronger than ever. Every year, the American Psychological Association conducts a nationwide survey. The purpose of the survey is, quote, to examine the state of stress across the country and to understand its impact. And the survey is actually called Stress in America. Those statements come from the 2022 Stress in America survey. And if you disagreed with those statements, you're in good company. Last year's report found that the majority of Americans disagreed with those statements, 62% and 63% respectively. The report goes on, more than three quarters of adults, 76%, said that the future of our nation is a significant source of stress in their lives, while 68% said this is the lowest point in our nation's history that they can remember. Uncertainty about the future was the major theme in the 2022 Stress in America report. In fact, the subtitle was, Concerned for the Future, Beset by Inflation. It seems rising prices are the only things anybody is certain about these days. The report says, people react differently to uncertainty, but you can take some simple steps to build your resilience in uncertain times. And then the APA psychologists offer strategies for navigating the fear of the unknown, like disrupt your negative thinking. Do something unexpected to try to make yourself more comfortable in uncertain situations. Take control where you can. Take your own advice. There you go. You know what to do. Just follow your own advice. Don't look for a rescuer. Those are the APA suggested strategies for navigating uncertain times. How do you handle uncertainty? What, what does uncertainty do to your soul, to your faith and confidence in God? It's been our rhythm for many years to spend a few weeks every summer in the Psalms. We usually call this time Summer Psalms. That's what we're going to do here for the last five weeks of this summer up until Labor Day. The Psalms provide us with an incredibly rich resource of language for expressing our faith in God in the midst of all kinds of seasons of life, the highs and the lows. And today we're going to be in Psalm 110. I want to invite you, if you're able to stand with me out of our reverence for God and His Word, because we read this book like no other book. In it, God speaks to us. Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to us to have access to your very own thoughts, your intentions, your plans, your counsel, your decrees, your sworn oaths that will never change. In you and in your word and in your purposes in human history, we have security and hope. And so we pray that through this word, you would speak to us this morning, that we might know you and your Christ and be secure in you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you're probably aware, the Psalms can be categorized by themes or genres. There are hymns and psalms of praise that just express exuberant joy in God for all of his goodness. Songs expressing God's glory and his greatness. There are laments that express faith mingled with pain and sorrow in the midst of grief and suffering. There are psalms of wisdom. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of remembrance. And there are royal psalms. Royal psalms typically portray a human king, usually in idealistic language, ruling in righteousness. And we know as we read the psalms as Christians that those psalms point beyond themselves. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm, and it is full of promises from God himself to God's anointed king. And in this psalm, God not only reveals, but he guarantees how God himself intends to assert himself in human history, in this fallen and uncertain world. Therefore, Psalm 110 is a source of incredible certainty and security in uncertain times. For those who know the God of Psalm 110 and the King of Psalm 110, the future is not a source of stress as it is for most Americans, but rather something that we look forward to with hope and joy because we have heard God speak. I want to draw out the meaning of Psalm 110 and its significance for your life and these times by asking a series of questions, beginning with this one. Who is this king? As with most psalms, Psalm 110 begins with a title, which tells us the author, a psalm of David. Eighty-four psalms begin this way. That's just over half of the psalms. Psalm of David. But as Derek Kidner says, nowhere in the Psalter does so much hang on the familiar title, a Psalm of David, as it does here. Why is this particular title of those other 83, why is this one such a big deal? Because in verse 1 it says, the Lord, if you notice in your Bibles that's all capital letters, that means Yahweh, God, Yahweh says to my Lord. Psalm 110 is a word from God addressed not to King David, who is kind of the ideal king of all the kings in Israel's history. Not addressed to David, it's addressed to David's Lord. And this immediately tells us that the king in Psalm 110 is not David, but 
a future king who will be so much greater than David that David himself will refer to that king as my Lord. Other royal psalms speak of a merely human king, usually in these idealistic ways, pointing beyond that king to the Messiah, but this one is different. This is the only royal psalm where we see the king himself bowing down to that king. And though the identity of that king was veiled to David, the New Testament unmistakably reveals that Jesus Christ is the king foretold in Psalm 110. In fact, the New Testament quotes or references Psalm 110 more than, get this, any other Old Testament passage. The most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It is quoted directly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts and Hebrews, it is alluded to in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Psalm 110 is foundational to how the New Testament understands Jesus Christ, both who he is and what he did and what he will do. Jesus quotes this psalm. Here's Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 22. It says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, so Jesus affirms that David's the author of this psalm, that it's inspired by the spirit of God. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You know the fifth commandment. Children, honor your father and your mother. It's not the other way around. No one was able to answer him a word. So Jesus confounds the best and the brightest Bible scholars of his day with this question about Psalm 110. First, he sets them up with an easy question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Everybody knows the answer. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God is supposed to be a descendant of David. But this is where Psalm 110 reveals a glorious mystery. Why then would David refer to one of his own descendants as my Lord and pay him homage in that way? Not only does Jesus imply that Psalm 110 is about himself, which is an incredible claim to make, but he hints that Psalm 110 promised a king who would be both God and man. The Pharisees were not wrong. The Christ would be a descendant of David according to the flesh, but Jesus is suggesting he must be much more than that, otherwise David would not be bowing before him, calling him Lord. The apostle Peter also quotes Psalm 110 on the day of Pentecost. We have that sermon in Acts chapter 2. He's preaching to a Jewish audience gathered in Jerusalem and his point is to prove that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, was God's anointed king, the one promised by all of the prophets. Acts 2, 34 through 36 records this part of Peter's sermon. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's, there it is, verse 1, Psalm 110. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is greater than David. 
David, as we all know, did not ascend into heaven to be enthroned at God's right hand. Jesus did. Therefore, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the Psalm 110 king. But that's not all. The author of Hebrews explicitly claims Psalm 110 is about Jesus when he writes in chapter 1, verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is an incredible word. A few chapters later in Hebrews 5, the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he says, God spoke those words to Jesus. And he repeats that claim in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7, 17 and Hebrews 7, 21. As great as David was as a king, he was not a priest. And Psalm 110 foretells a king who is also a priest. David had no authority to make himself a priest. But this king in Psalm 110 becomes a priest by an unbreakable oath from God. The author of Hebrews spends almost a whole chapter commenting on, expositing, preaching this verse. Psalm 110, verse 4. And, and I just can't improve on his spirit-inspired words. And so let me quote Scripture, interpreting Scripture at length. This is Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with, the tri with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, this is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made so without an oath. But this one, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This, this makes Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is no doubt in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the priest king promised in Psalm 110. Which brings us to another question. When does Jesus reign? When do the events of Psalm 110 happen? These events obviously were in the future for David, but where are they in relation to us? And to answer this, we should look again to the New Testament, where we have this treasure trove of inspired interpretation of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. When does that happen? Hebrews 1 verse 3. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. He, that is the Father, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. After his death and resurrection, Scripture makes clear Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and rightly so. But you may be less familiar with Jesus' ascension and what theologians call his session. His ascension refers to his exaltation of the right hand of the Father, which took place 40 days after his resurrection, as it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. His session refers to his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down. The word session comes from the Latin word sessio, which means the act of sitting. That's why we talk about Congress being in session or the governor calling a special legislative session. The session of Christ is not like taking a chair in a waiting room. He has assumed the highest position of authority in all the universe when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And the session of Christ is no minor theme in the New Testament. There are nearly two dozen references to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. This is a big deal that we don't think about or talk about enough, I think. According to Hebrews 10, Jesus sitting down is the proof that his saving work is finished. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Where would the author of Hebrews get such an idea? Psalm 1. 10. Jesus sat down because he had finished his work atoning for sins and because he began his work ruling over the universe and redeeming the people he gave his life to save. Acts 5.31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. His sitting down at the right hand of God is a continuation of his saving work to apply it now to his people in history. The session of Christ is the source of hope and security, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The session of Christ gives encouragement and endurance, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is not in my notes. Colossians 3, 1. Set your minds, therefore, on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The session of Christ is a big deal. It is right. It is absolutely right for us to remember and proclaim all that Jesus did in his death and resurrection. And it is right and fitting for us to anticipate and long for all that he's going to do when he returns. But 
we must not imagine that in the meantime, Jesus is idly waiting on the sidelines until regulation time expires. Rather, we must rest in and rejoice in all that Jesus is doing right now, seated at God's right hand. Psalm 110 goes on, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit until. That means that right now, God is subduing Christ's enemies under his feet. He is already seated at God's right hand, and God the Father is doing something with Jesus sitting there. This is crucial to understand. I, I just think too many Christians tend to think that the reign of Christ is mainly a future thing. Someday in the future, Jesus will return to set up his kingdom, but until then, the thinking goes, this world is ruled by Satan. According to the New Testament interpretation and application of Psalm 110, the time when Jesus reigns from the right hand of God is now. And it's now that his enemies are being made a footstool under his feet. They resist him in vain. Don't let the current state of this world cause you to think otherwise. Psalm 110 helps us to make sense of this reality that Jesus is at the right hand of God and what we see in the world around us. The, the very last verse in this psalm, verse 7, says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is rather an abrupt ending to a glorious, exalted, royal psalm. It is not a victory parade. There he is, the king is on his throne, and there was peace in the land, and they all lived happily ever after. No, th this psalm ends in what one commentator calls fierce battle and strenuous pursuit. The scene is reminiscent of Gideon in Judges chapter 8, verse 4, where he's crossing over the Jordan River with his army of 300, and it says in Judges, they were exhausted yet pursuing the routed Midianite army. Derek Kidner writes, we are left with the picture of the warrior following up his victory, pausing only to renew his strength and press on to complete the rout. Perhaps the clearest order of events at the end of human history is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what passage does Paul cite for his authority there? Psalm 110. Then, that is at Christ's coming, which he just referred to in chapter, uh, verse 23, then at his coming comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, here's the reference to Psalm 110, he must reign until, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus returns, that will be the end. And Christ returns not to begin reigning, but to deliver his fully established kingdom to the Father. And his kingdom is established because he has destroyed every rebel power. When Jesus returns, there will be only one remaining enemy, and that will be death itself, and he will conquer death when he returns and raises the dead. The enthronement of the king is not the end. That, that's the beginning of his global conquest. This is what we call inaugurated eschatology or the beginning of the end or the already 
Not yet. Christ is already reigning from the right hand of God the Father, but his enemies are not yet fully conquered. But they will be. Third question. Where does Jesus reign? There is an important contrast of locations here in Psalm 110. If you caught this, verse 1 reveals the king seated in heaven at God's right hand, but verse 5 shows him on the battlefield. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Here, the king is asserting his authority among the nations, over the wide earth, though he's still the king at God's right hand. So according to Psalm 110, Christ rules on earth because he is Lord in heaven. Those two things go together. He rules on earth because he's Lord in heaven. And again, tragically, it seems there are some Christians who talk about the reign of Christ as though his position right now in heaven were some kind of a disadvantage or drawback that limits his ability to really rule on earth. When he physically returns, people think, then he will finally assert his authority here. But until then, his influence is going to be minimal, marginal. But why would Jesus be limited in a way that Satan is not? Satan's not physically present on earth, but is there any doubt that he asserts real influence in this world over people and families and nations? And he's inferior to Christ, isn't he? Jesus' position in heaven is not a handicap. It is not a limitation. It is the highest possible authorization. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected. Past tense, having been subjected to him. He is there in power and authority. Jesus began the great commission by telling his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been already now given to me. Go, therefore. This is the basis. This is the authorization that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And is his position in heaven a hindrance? No. He says at the end of the Great Commission, behold, I am with you, with you always, even to the end of the age. So when Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world in John 18, 36, he did not mean my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. No, he meant his authority comes from God and surpasses all earthly powers. He's not authorized or deputized by any human authority. He has authority over all powers on earth. In Psalm 110, it is God himself who declares, sit at my right hand. Jesus is the universal, unassailable king because his authority is divine. It is God himself who issues this decree. God himself who, send, who sends out his scepter. God who aids his king in victory. Verse 2 makes this clear. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Zion is the place where God made his presence dwell with his people, and from Zion as his capital, God causes this king's dominion to extend outward into enemy territory, bringing more and more people into his kingdom. And just how far 
Will this king's dominion extend? The prophet Zechariah declares, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation who trust in Jesus. Last question. How does Jesus reign? Psalm 110 promises Christ will be universally acknowledged as Lord. How will that happen? Well, first, God assures us that he will judge and subjugate all unrepentant enemies and make them a footstool for his feet in verse 1. That, that is, in a nutshell, the Bible's answer to the problem of evil. Why does God permit evil, which displeases God, why does God allow evil in this world? So that his king can conquer it in glory. History does not end with the annihilation of evil. This is significant. It, it ends with the humiliation of evil under the feet of Jesus, with his foot on the necks of his enemies, which assures us even the most powerful evil powers, spiritual powers of evil, exist to magnify the glory of Christ in victory over them. But God also promises to give his king a willing people. Do you catch that in verse 3? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. A king with a crown and a throne and a scepter, but no people is just playing dress up. But Psalm 110 promises that King Jesus will have a vast army of people who joyfully and freely, willingly follow him. The, the scene described here is that of an army rallying to their king, ready for war. And the second half of the verse is tricky. Talking about the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth, this poetic language. I think John Calvin gives a helpful explanation when he writes, David extols the divine favor displayed in increasing the number of Christ's people. And hence, in consequence of their extraordinary increase, he compares the youth or race which would be born to him to the dew. As men are struck with astonishment at seeing the earth moistened and refreshed with dew, though its descent be imperceptible, even so, David declares that in innumerable offspring shall be born to Christ who shall be spread over the whole earth. This speaks of the greatness, the number, the vastness of the people who will willingly trust in and worship this king. The testimony, Calvin goes on, of experience proves that there was good reason for writing, for uttering this prediction. The multitude who in so short a time have been gathered together and subjected to Christ's sway is incredible. The more so as this has been accomplished by the sound of the gospel alone, and that, too, in spite of the formidable opposition of the whole world. This is how Christ reigns. He rules the world by changing hearts through the power of his gospel. You see, the world is not neatly divided into his enemies and his allies. We were all enemies of God, and the way that Christ conquers 
The way that he extends his kingdom is through the proclamation of his gospel, which changes people, brings dead hearts alive, softens rebels' hearts to repent and to trust in him. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. This is not a battle fought with physical weapons. But our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, listen to these words, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Through his gospel and through the power of his word, Christ is overcoming every argument and every objection that comes from atheism or paganism or transgenderism or secular humanism and he is converting people from the inside out by the power of his gospel. That's how Christ asserts his authority on earth. His scepter sent forth from Zion is his word sent forth from his church and as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, enemies of God are brought in and reconciled to him. And as people are changed, families are changed, and as families are changed, nations are changed to submit to King Jesus and his righteous ways. As you submit your life to Jesus, his rule and reign is manifested in you and in your sphere of influence. God has guaranteed this by promising to his king a willing people. If you're in Christ, then it was God's grace and God's promise to Christ that made you willing so that his gospel won you over. So take heart. Christ is Lord. And Psalm 110 reveals his universal, his unassailable lordship. And this profound truth that Christ is Lord is the source of salvation forever and security today. In the midst of uncertain times, rely on Jesus, God's unassailable king. There's only one question that remains then. Do you confess Christ as your Lord? If you don't, Psalm 110 is a warning to all of his enemies. It is a warning that judgment awaits. But you can be right with God today by submitting to and relying on Jesus as king. Submit to him as king. That means surrender. Cease your rebellion and submit to Jesus and rely on Jesus. That is, rely on his perfect life and his death for the forgiveness of your sins. Rely on him to satisfy your soul. Rely on him for your life now and forever. And you will be reconciled to God, clothed in holy garments and counted among his willing people. Let's pray. Father, I just can't get over the, the blessing, the privilege, the joy, the honor that it is to have access to your word where you reveal these things to us so that we might know you as the God who is at work in human history, the God who has enthroned your anointed king at your right hand forever, the God who has provided a mediator so that we might be right with you. We thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ our priest and king. We honor him. 
We love you, Jesus. We trust in you, and it is our joy this morning to confess again, you, Lord Jesus, you and you alone are king. May you have the highest praise. Amen.